This is Cross Hope with Randy Snyder. Cross Hope is broadcast daily and shares five minutes of hope and encouragement from the Word of God. Our companion website is www.crosshope.org. Now with today's uplifting message, here's Randy. But it was in Bristol, Virginia, that a woman grew up by the name of Josephine Mullicky. This was many years ago. Josephine Mullicky was six years old when her mother handed her a bucket, an open bucket of lye, and said, I need you to take this to a neighbor. So this six-year-old girl named Josephine starts walking across her yard to the next yard, and she drops the bucket of lye. You know what happened. The lye splashed into her eyes, and for the next 74 years, this little girl was blind in both eyes. She had a semblance of light. She had a semblance of color, but had no definition. She couldn't recognize people and couldn't read, and she was legally blind for 74 years. At age 80, through the encouragement of a family doctor and her family, she had what's called, I believe, a corneal transplant, and for the first time in her life, she was able to see the face of her husband. Now, a woman at first service said, if I just saw my husband for the first time this week, she said it'd be a pretty traumatic event. I don't know what she experienced seeing her husband for the first time at age 80. She was able to see for the first time the faces of her children and the faces of her grandchildren. And it was a great experience. And someone asked her, Josephine, what did you feel at that moment? And she said, I wanted to sing from the top of my lungs. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. That's the understatement of the century. But that's what she wanted to do. That's what she wanted to sing. Josephine Mullicky had to learn something with 74 years from age 6 to age 80, living with blindness. She had to learn patience, and she talked about it. Patience with people, patience with her handicap, patience with circumstances, patience with what she dealt with, her disability, and every aspect of that and all that that means. And today I want to talk to you about patience in a different way. The dictionary defines patience as the ability or the willingness to put up with annoyances. I thought that was an interesting definition. The ability or the willingness to put up with annoyances. Some of you say, yeah, tell me about it. I've got a lot of annoyances in my life that I have to put up with. But I'm going to give you a definition of patience, a biblical definition of patience from the Word of God and from the Greek language that I think will enhance your appreciation for this good biblical word called patience. We read about it in the book of James, exactly where I left off two weeks ago. James 5, beginning at verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, 
Let your yes be yes, and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Well, all this week on our program, we're looking at James 5, 7 through 12. It has to do with patience in your life. I don't know if you consider yourself a patient man or patient woman. It really doesn't matter. I want you to hear this message tomorrow as it continues on Crossover. I did this in the first service. We just left the last verse up. I want to talk about it almost parenthetically, but it's a powerful statement. James really quotes Jesus saying, let your yes be yes, don't swear by heaven or earth. I never understood it until someone explained it to me. In biblical times, there were two kinds of oaths. There was what was called the binding oath and a non-binding oath. Anytime you brought the name of God into an oath, it was binding. But if you can believe this, if you didn't use the name of God, it wasn't considered necessarily binding. And people were experts at getting out of promises because they said, hey, I didn't bring the name of God into it. And Jesus came along in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and said, you know what? Let your yes be yes, your no be no, meaning what? Just talk straight up. And what you say you're going to do, you do, and you don't need to bring the name of God into it. Have you ever heard somebody that uses the phrase, I swear to God, I swear to God, every, every other sentence I want to tell you something that I really believe is true. That is something that is using the name of God in vain to repetitively say, I swear to God, I swear to God all the time. And people do that in everyday conversation. And Jesus' simple response would be, let your yes be yes and your no, no. We are not to invoke the name of God in a cavalier way. We're not to invoke the name of God in some casual way that doesn't make any difference to us. To use the name of God is to use the name of God, and it can be done in vain. That's all I'll say about that verse. Well, let's bring up verse 7. We're going to focus in on verse 7. It says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Most people, when they read that thought, be patient until the Lord's coming, think about the second coming of Christ. I know that's what it means. I know that's involved in it. But the Greek word that's used there for that term, the second coming, or for the coming of the Lord, can also mean the presence of a person, the arrival of a person. And here's what I want to suggest to you. We're to be patient until the Lord comes into a situation in our lives, is maybe what that means as well. If you came to Christ as an adult, you will understand what I mean. Some of you can point to a day, a specific day on the calendar, and you can say, that's the day the Lord came into our marriage. That's the day the Lord came into our family. That's the day the Lord came into my job situation. Why? Because you invited him in through prayer, and that was the moment in time that you sensed the coming of the Lord, his arrival, his presence. That's what I want to suggest to you. We're to be patient until the Lord comes into a situation. You may be praying for a problem in your home. Be patient until the Lord comes in and works. You may be praying for a son or daughter, and you say, I don't see any activity going on. Be patient until the Lord comes into that situation. You may have a problem at work, and you say, I wish the Lord would do something. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, the presence and the arrival of the Lord in that place. What I want to do is give you what I call a biblical definition of patience. The Greek word that's used there, I can't even pronounce it. I'll just define it in the way that it's defined 
in the Greek dictionary, there are three things that are used to define patience, this word, to not lose heart. The most natural thing to do in a problem situation is to lose heart, which means to give up. Some of you lost heart about a situation in your life in the last 30 days, and you're ready to throw in the towel. Well, truth be known, does that phrase describe you, that you've lost heart, that you're willing to give up in a situation, you're willing to throw in the towel to use that phrase? This is dealt with all this week from James 5, 7 through 12, as we look at patience in your life and in my life from the Word of God, not from a psychologist or a therapist, but from the Lord Himself. There are three things that are used to define patience, this word, to not lose heart. The most natural thing to do in a problem situation is to lose heart, which means to give up. Some of you lost heart about a situation in your life in the last 30 days, and you're ready to throw in the towel. It's happened to some of you in the last year, the last six months, where you're ready to throw in the towel and say, what is the use? I've tried, I've prayed, and patience says, don't lose heart. Keep on keeping on. There's a second definition, to persevere in misfortune and trouble. One of the hardest things to do in life is to keep on going when you run into misfortune and trouble. To keep walking and to keep running, to keep going in a situation, and that's part of biblical patience, to persevere. And then thirdly, to be slow to anger or seek revenge. Don't raise your hands, but some of you are quicker than others to lose your temper. And some of you are quicker than others to seek revenge. There are some people that as soon as they're wrong, revenge is on the calendar right now. What's on their radar scope? Revenge. I'm going to get even. And a person who has biblical patience is slow to anger and slow to seek revenge. Do a test on yourself. Are you quick to show anger? Are you trigger happy when it comes to anger? Does it just take a little provocation and you're gone in terms of the anger issue? Are you quick to seek revenge? Then you are not having what I would call biblical patience in your life. I want to bring up another verse, verse 8. I skipped this actually in the first service. We need to talk about it. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Verse 8. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. What does it mean to stand firm? How many of you have sold a house or a car ever in your life? You personally sold a house or a car. Do you remember when you came to a place where you lowered the price on the house or that car? Then you came to that place where you said, this is it. I am standing firm on this price. I don't care if nobody buys it. I'm standing firm on this price. Let me tell you what it means to stand firm in the Lord. You stand firm on everything Jesus Christ is and everything you're not. To stand firm means you stand firm on who He is and what He is. You stand firm on your belief in this book we call the Bible. You stand firm in your faith in prayer. You stand firm in your faith in general in the Lord. Most people don't stand firm. Most people waver, and I'm talking about you and me. We waver. And there's somebody here today that needs those words. You need to stand firm in your faith and your walk with the Lord. You've never done it before, but today you're going to stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Let's bring up the next verse, verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. 
the judge is standing at the door. I wanted to know, what's the word grumble mean in the original? Found out it can mean two things. To grumble can mean to groan or to sigh. Has anyone sighed at you lately? Have you sighed at anyone lately? Here's what it is. (sighs) Doesn't that convey... I mean, you just get a whole sense, a feeling of that, just the sigh when somebody does that with you. You know it means they're getting impatient. You know it means they're not going to put up with much more. And that's what James says, don't grumble against one another. Don't groan inside. The church was evidently going through persecution when James wrote that. And you know what happened? Christian people were turning on one another. You see it in churches. You see it in families where there's strife. And there's problems and people start turning on one another. There are dramatic moments that happen in every profession and they happen in the ministry. One of the most dramatic moments I can ever tell you about happened to me, happened at a cemetery. I was asked to conduct a funeral in Columbus for a man I didn't know. I didn't know the widow, didn't know the family, but a funeral director asked me to conduct this funeral. I did the funeral at the funeral home, went to the cemetery, did the committal service. It started out with about 50 or 60 people at the cemetery, and you've been at the cemetery, and you know what I'm describing. People started filtering to their cars, and 50 or 60 people turned into 40, and then to 30, and then to 20, and then to 10, and there were about five or six people left there. And the man's widow walked up to the grave right next to the casket that was ready to be lowered into the ground. And no one else was with her, no family member. She was there by herself. I just happened to look at the funeral director, and he nodded, signaling me, why don't you go up there and stand next to her? So I did. Didn't say a word to her, but I stood right next to her so she would know I was there. And she shocked me. She turned to me and pointed to the casket and said, that man made my life miserable every day of my life. What do you say? Oh, that's nice. I didn't know what to say other than you're, I'm sorry. That man made my life miserable every day of my life. And you know what? I don't know what happened in that relationship, but I can tell you one thing. I think it would be safe to say he was a grumbler. He groaned and sighed, he complained, he griped, he whined, whatever term you want to use on a continual basis. And at least in her mind, that man made her life miserable. Here's my point. Don't ever let it be said at your funeral that you made somebody's life miserable. Don't ever let it be said when you're gone that you made a person's life or a group of people miserable but that you were the opposite of that. You were a person who blessed people. That man blessed my life. That woman blessed my day and blessed my day after day and my weeks and my years. Let that be said of you. And I believe that people can do that when you decide to be a blessing. If you remember anything from the book of James at all, James says we have the power to bless with our words. We have the power to give life and we have the power to kill. With our word, Psalm says that the tongue has the power of life and death. And you have the power to bless and to be a blessing. If you come into my office, one thing that people always notice are the collection of pictures I have around the walls of mountains. But I have an actual photograph of Mount Everest. It's not a poster. It's not a print. It's an actual photograph that somebody took for me 
And I greatly appreciated the gift of a, a real picture of Mount Everest, a black and white photograph. It was 1953 that Sir Edmund Hillary and a Sherpa guide by the name of Tenzing Norgay were the first people that are known to have conquered Mount Everest and climbed up to the summit. I don't know if you know this, but on the descent, as they were coming down the mountain, just the two of them, Sir Edmund Hillary slipped. And because of the quick thinking, the quick action and response of the Sherpa guide, Tenzing Norgay, he saved not only his life, but actually both of their lives. You're, you're roped together. One falls, you all, you both fall. He brushed it off, and he, he would tell reporters, it's no big deal what I did. Mountain climbers help other mountain climbers. That's what we do. And he was very casual about what he did. That's just being a part of being a mountain climber. You help other people. You bless other people. And the thought occurred to me, if mountain climbers can have that attitude, why shouldn't the body of Christ? That's what we do. We help one another. We encourage one another. We bless one another in the body of Christ. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Southern California in recent years, but it seems like there are a lot of fires every year in Southern California. The story that I want to tell you about comes from a few years ago in the San Francisco area, the Oakland Fire, as it's referred to. The Oakland Fire was so devastating, the fire department was going from door to door, not asking people, they were ordering people to leave their homes immediately. Not tomorrow, not in five minutes, but now. Two firemen from the Oakland Fire Department went up to one house, and as they were talking with one another, going up to the door, one said to the other, you know we're not going to make it, don't you? And he said, yeah, I know, we're not going to survive this. They knocked on the door of this last home. A woman answered the door. They grabbed her. They ran to the backyard. The three of them jumped in the pool in the woman's backyard. They pulled a tarpaulin over their heads. Burning embers were falling in on the pool. The oxygen was thin, and, and there wasn't a lot of it because fire consumes oxygen, and they could barely breathe. And they honestly, all three of them, including both firemen, thought they weren't going to survive, but they did. A reporter for a San Francisco newspaper interviewed the woman and said, what did you think about when you were in the pool with the tarpaulin over you? And I'm surprised they printed it away because it's such a powerful spiritual story. She said, I thought about God. Not in the sense of whether or not he existed. I thought about God and how I didn't have a relationship with him. Isn't that interesting? A woman who's facing death by fire in, in California thinking this is the end. She said, I thought about God and that I didn't have a relationship with him. Listen carefully. The God we're speaking of today is the God James describes in this way. He's full of compassion and mercy. He's the judge, that's right, but he's full of compassion and mercy, and that's the God we call people to. I'm not calling people to a judge only. We're calling people to a God who's full of compassion and mercy. Do you know what that means, to be full of compassion? The reason we don't believe that God is full of compassion and mercy, can I let you in a little secret? The reason a lot of people don't believe it is because they're not full of compassion. And they're not full of mercy. And they've lived with family members who were not full of compassion and mercy. And they grew up in a home that wasn't full of compassion and mercy. And they've been married to somebody for 20 or 30 years that isn't full of compassion and mercy. And that's why we have trouble believing when a preacher says God is full of compassion and mercy. And I want to leave you with this. 
Think of the most loving person you can think of, loving, kindest person. Multiply it a thousand times, and you still haven't begun to capture the compassion and the mercy of a loving God who wants to have a relationship with you. Henry Blackaby, who wrote the book, Experiencing God is Right, Christianity is simply a relationship, not a religion. It's a relationship with a person, the personal God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? You come to the Father through the Son. You come to God the Father through God the Son by accepting everything that you know about Jesus Christ, and you accept that in everything you know about you. And that's why you're able to commit yourself to Him. That's why at a cemetery, when I have a committal service, the thing I say at every committal service is, Lord, we commit everything we know about this person, everything we love, and everything we remember about this man or woman. When we commit that to everything we know and love about you, God of compassion, God of mercy who loves us. Well, from time to time, we remind you about our website, crosshope.org. That's one word, crosshope.org, to listen to any message you've missed and also to find out a way to become a part of this ministry we call Crosshope. You've been listening to Crosshope with Randy Snyder. For more information about this ministry or to re-listen to any message heard on this broadcast, go to our website at crosshope.org. Be sure to join us at this same time each weekday or listen at www.crosshope.org. Crosshope is listener-supported and is produced by Crosshope Ministries, Incorporated.